passion and desire and worship. I trust that we are here together to seek the face of God. And what do we expect to, to see? We often call this a worship service. What is worship? What comes to your mind when you think of worship? What do, you feel free to, to answer that question. What, do you, what comes to your mind when you think of worship? Attention, engagement of the mind. Praise, adoration. Filling a need. Sacrifice. I think these are all good, good and accurate pieces of, of worship. I'd like to read a, a simple poem here before I move on. Feeling faith and fact. Three were walking on a wall. Feeling faith and fact. You got the three different aspects of experience. When feeling took an awful fall and faith was taken back, so close with faith to feeling that faith stumbled and fell down too. But fact remained strong and pulled up faith, and faith brought feeling too. So is worship. Just think about that a little bit as we, as we look at worship. Turn to Genesis 22. Genesis 22, beginning in verse 4. This is the first place in our King James where the word worship is mentioned, I believe. We studied Abraham here Wednesday night, and this is one of the key moments in the life of Abraham. After God had called him to sacrifice his only son, in verse 4 of chapter 22, it says, Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off, and Abraham said unto the young, his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. How could Abraham say, I and the lad will go yonder and worship? Fact remained. Worship, 
Well, as I think of, of worship, there's a, a, di a di dictionary definition, the reverent love and devotion accorded to deity, or the, the ceremonies and forms that go into expressing love. But here, I had to think, so, so this worship, was it, was it fact, faith, or feeling? And I have a, a little definition that I believe that worship is what happens when we see facts through eyes of faith that produce feelings that do something. Because, well, just an example. So I see a tree in October, the middle of October, that is brilliant. There's a few close to home that I keep driving past this week and are stunning. There's a couple right out here that uh, I, I told the family this morning, maybe we need to come to church more often. I didn't realize those trees out there were so pretty. But we weren't able to be here last week and we came Wednesday night in the dark. But I see that beautiful tree. That's a fact. I couple that with faith that I know who created that tree, right? Who designed it to be that way? The mechanisms, whatever. Yes, it's scientifically explainable. But the underlying principles come from the hand of God. And that's faith. And that produces beauty that I can enjoy. And I'm awed by that. I am, I am gripped by that. And then there's a response. Maybe it's internal. Maybe it's just thoughts that I think of worship, of, of standing in awe of God, of thinking how great God is. And maybe my mouth brings out words of amazement and gratitude. It's a picture. It's facts that are seen through eyes of faith that produce a result. Abraham approached the mountain with the fact that Isaac was going to die. But through the eyes of faith, he believed that God would raise him from the dead. Hebrews 11 says that, that he, he believed that it wouldn't be the end for Isaac. And it says he received him in a figure. I think basically in his mind, Isaac was dead and raised again already. I don't understand, and I don't, I don't know exactly what all was there. But we do know that Abraham was a man of tremendous faith. And I think in this situation, faith saw the facts and enabled him to carry through with what he was asked to do, and he called that worship. But as was mentioned, would you notice that this act of worship was centered on sacrifice? It was based on giving something costly. True worship will cost us something. I'd like to look at a number of other scriptures that 
reference worship Following this, there's a story of Eliezer. He was Abraham's servant, and he was tasked with going back to Mesopotamia, where Abraham had originally been from, to find a wife for Isaac. And when Abraham sent him away, he gave him the assurance. In Genesis 24, verse 7, he says, The Lord God of heaven, which took me from my father's house, and from the land of my kindred, and spake unto me, and swear unto me, saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land. He shall send his angel before thee, and thou shalt take a wife unto my son from thence. Eliezer had this. He had seen Abraham. He'd been Abraham's servant a long time. He'd seen Abraham working and, and doing and interacting with God. But he came there to, to the well, and he prayed. And he prayed to God that God would give him success, give him good speed. And then he says, let it come to pass. And he, he lays out the, the fleece, if you will. He said, I want to ask someone, this lady that I ask, she's going to give me a drink. She's going to water the camels. All this thing, I want this to happen. And he was led directly to the closest relative of Abraham, and out of that, it says in verses 26 and 27 of Genesis 24, And the man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord. Worship flows from that heart of gratitude and wonder. He bowed his head and worshipped. Exodus 4, verses 30 and 31, where... Moses and Aaron come to the children of Israel there in the land of Egypt. They're in bondage. They're suffering. And it says that Aaron spake all the words that the Lord spoke unto Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked upon their affliction and they bowed their heads and worshipped. God, they, they, they heard that God had come to deliver them, was going to deliver them. A few chapters later in Exodus 27, Moses is giving them the instructions for the Passover. It had not happened yet, but he's giving them instructions. In verse 27 of Exodus 12, that ye shall say, so do these things, and then he says, in this, And ye shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt, when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. And the people bowed the head and worshipped. And the children of Israel went away and did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so did they. I'd like to, to think of that, that last phrase. It required sacrifice. They had to give up something. They had to find a lamb. They had to sacrifice it. It required obedience. In their, but that was their response. I don't know if you've noticed, there's a phrase that's been in each of these accounts that has accompanied worship. There's another one in Joshua chapter 5 where Joshua was standing there at Jericho trying to strategize, how are we going to take this city? And he sees a man standing there. And he goes over to him and says, 
Are you for us or for our enemies, for our adversaries? And the man said, Nay, but as captain of the Lord, host of the Lord, now I come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship. And said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereon thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. Can you imagine what Joshua felt as he was responsible to conquer this city? And he was trying to strategize all this out. And here is the captain of the Lord of hosts. And he worshipped. He fell down and worshipped, it says. Jehoshaphat, a king of Israel earlier than Hezekiah by a couple hundred years, king there of king of Judah, and he was faced with a similar situation. We didn't really look at Hezekiah's situation with Sennacherib and going to the temple and all that, but that's what Jehoshaphat faced with the Amorites. They knew that they were up against a wall. They were, they were going to be conquered. And Jehoshaphat, they humbled themselves before God. They pled with God. And a prophet answered and declared unto them the miraculous salvation that they would experience the next day. Tomorrow, go down. Set yourselves... You do not need to fight in this battle, but set yourselves and see the salvation of the Lord. Do not fear or be dismayed, for the Lord will be with you. And it says, And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. When Joab received word that all his possessions and his children were gone, what did he do? It says he arose, rent his mantle, shaved his head, fell to the ground, and worshipped. What is what a, what accompanies or defines worship in every one of these accounts? Every one of them fell down. Bowed, either bowed head or bowed body or fell down. The, the Hebrew word that is, is translated worship in all these, the, the Strong's definition is to depress, that is prostrate. To fall down, to lower, to humble, to abase oneself in the sight of God. Humility is, the, is a key, the key here. Psalm 95, verse 6 says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Now I have a question. Does physical posture equal spiritual condition? Can you bow down without worshiping? I think we'd all have to say that, yes, they are not one and the same. Then does it matter? Does your physical posture matter? 
know, there's, there's the little story about the child that's told to sit down, and he says, well, I may sit down, but I'm still standing on the inside. Are you, are you standing on the inside? But does, is there a correlation between the physical and the spiritual? Because we believe these people that fell down and worshipped, it was something that was happening in their spirits. But it affected their body. Now, if I tell you to praise the Lord right now, what will you do? In a quiet, spiritual way, praise the Lord. Just in your spirit, Tim. Now, all of you stand up. And moderately shout, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Again, hallelujah. All right, sit down. You know what hallelujah means? Praise the Lord. Now, you can say hallelujah and not really praise the Lord. But it involves all of your being to stand up, think about what you're going to say, and say it. I think, well, Nehemiah 8, verse 6. Ezra blessed the Lord, the God, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen. Amen, with lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped. So see there, I, I, that picture is interesting because there's both that, that raising of spirit to God along with humility. We worship as we recognize who God is and who we are. You know, I, I took a, a class at Bible school a number of years ago about prayer, and there were three, three things of why pray. And I can remember them today yet because they were so simple and so real. Why pray is because of who God is, because of who Satan is, and of who I am. And I don't think we need to realize who Satan is to worship. And so I think it's because of who God is and who I am is why we worship. Who God is in ourselves before God. The Greek word for worship that's used in the New Testament is proskunia. And it is, it is uh, the, the definition here again in the Strong's is meaning to kiss, like a dog licking his master's hand, to fawn or couch to, or crouch to, that is, to prostrate oneself in homage. And I had heard that definition, and I've thought about it many, many times. We have a dog around our house. This dog, it, it tolerates me. It, it kind of likes me, I think. I'm not its master. I don't know who it really is. 
He adores some people more than others. But often, Brandy will come up to me and want something. And she'll nuzzle my hand because she wants to be petted. And then, not only that, if I reach down to pet her, she'll often lay down and roll over so I can rub her belly. And, and she's, she said, I want you. I like you. I think you're important, and I want you to pay some attention to me. But she doesn't just go away and hide. Meaning to kiss like a dog licking his master's hand. And these words, the, the, uh, I don't know that I have the... It's actually two parts, but one of these words that make up worship in Greek is dog, and the other is kiss. And that's where this comes from, from, from a dog, that, that, that adoration. Think of a dog that just loves its master. Now, we can't take everything from these words and apply them exactly, but it does help us think a little bit. When we come before God, how are we coming? Are we coming? Well, I've got this need, God. Uh, God, I, I'm here because I'm supposed to be here. Or is it a heart that is humble, that is filled with gratitude and awe? That's a bit of, of some looking at, at some definition of worship. I'd like to, to look now a little more at, at thinking of direction of worship or what we worship. Here we think of worship as worshiping God, and that is where it is to be. But not every instance in our life, in most of the world around us, does not worship God. In John verse 4, chapter 4, verses 20 and 24, we have that well-known discourse between Jesus and the woman at the well. I'll just read that quickly here. It says, the lady says there, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. I think we can ascertain from, from this text that worship is much more than just a physical act, a, a doing of something. The whole Old Testament law of worship the, the forms, the rituals, they were built on doing something. Forms and motions or actions can be done by the body without that involvement and participation in the spirit. But the participation of the spirit, the feelings and the faith must be done according to fact. In Mark 7, Jesus has this to say in verses 6 and 7. 
Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, or they don't really worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. They were not worshiping God even though they thought they were. They were lifting up something else above God. And that's the true definition of idolatry, is anything else that is lifted up or placed above or in front of God. In Exodus 20, 3 through 5, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I am a jealous God. Anything that comes in the place of God is an idol. It sucks the worship and leaves God without what is properly due Him. The worship of idols was a prevalent practice in that day. Physical objects that were made to bow down to, to and this was, this was impacted the children of Israel, but it was the practice of the heathen cultures. And you, you read history and, and understand what was going on and all the different sacrifices that they would bring to their idols. Sacrifices were part of worship. What are things that we can worship today? I think a huge change in the world around us, perhaps in our own lives, is a change from seeking something else to worship to worshiping ourselves. Humanism, there's a lot of isms that we hear about sometimes. Individualism, materialism, humanism. But humanism, in the, the dictionary that I was looking, the third definition was this, a doctrine. It's a teaching. Attitude or way of life centered on human interests or values especially a philosophy that usually rejects supernaturalism, a belief in God, and stresses an individual's dignity and worth and capacity for self-realization through reason. It's basically saying that we don't need God. We are the end in of ourselves if we can logically think this through. And therefore, we can explain anything we want to, to our own advantage, our own end. We have no one to answer to but ourselves. But in this, there's a lot of practical things that can get in our way. Of worship. Of living a life of worship. Part of that I may be able to reference shortly. I'd like to look very briefly yet here at, in thinking of, of who we worship. When Paul was in, in Athens, 
He was standing on Mars Hill, and that place was a place of worship, of pagan worship. And it says that as he, as he looked around in, in his address to them, he says, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and, and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription. So there were a lot of altars. There was a lot of worship. A lot of sacrifice. But there was one that said, To the unknown God. To the unknown God. And Paul says, Whom ye therefore ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. How could they ignorantly worship God? And yet there was something that they felt that was beyond themselves that they wanted to give. They wanted to honor. They wanted to humble themselves before. How do we worship? Because as he goes on, he says in verse 25 of Acts 17, well, he, he, in verse 24, he says, God made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. We can give all kinds of things, and that's not what God needs. So if God isn't worshipped with just giving things, sacrificing animals, bringing these, these offerings, how do we worship? And verse 30 is this kind of sums up what, well, it, it's a thought there. It says that God now commands everyone, everywhere to repent. And I think that that is the, true ba the basis for true worship. Because that is seeing God for who he is and myself for who I am. But then we have things. We have, we have an expression to live out. And how are we going to worship? It's things we, in our practical, yes, we worship with our mind. But here again, I said it involves all of our being. There's feelings, there's faith, and there's facts. But we have, I'm going to just look at three, three things here. I've broken it into just thinking about our thoughts and our desires. So where are, what we really want in life, what we really are passionate about. What we spend a lot of time with is indicative of what we're passionate about. And thirdly, what we spend our money on and invest our money in. Tell us about where our passions are. If we, this is a worship service, how is it a worship service? One thing is we do sacrifice our time and perhaps our pleasures, our our. Carnal pleasures. Maybe it's a drudgery for you to come here. Well, I hope it's not. But it's a choice. It's not always pleasant. Sacrifice is not always pleasant. Rarely is it pleasant. But it's part of that giving. It's part of 
of giving God what is rightfully His. So we sacrifice our time and our pleasure to meet together, to worship, to draw our hearts, our spirits, to honor God for who He is. Singing is often referred to as a time of worship, and I think rightly so. On the cover of our psalm books, it does say, Come before His presence with singing, and that's the quote from Psalm 95. Singing is one of the few activities that involves your mind, your will, your emotions, and your body all at the same time. Now, it doesn't have to. Some can mindlessly sing. But if you think about what you're saying, you think about what you're singing, your spirit is turned toward God. Music works with your emotions to create feelings. Your body expresses those. And it's a beautiful way to bring all together in worship. I'd just like to read a few verses from Mark 12 in closing. As we think about worship, I don't have a checklist of things that you can go home this week and say, or maybe a big bone to chew on, but maybe you can think about worship in your life and experience. This is just an overview or an introduction. But in your life as you go, as you wake up in the morning, as you invest your time and your money, what is it for? Because all of life is worship of something. We all invest thoughts, time, and money into something. But in Mark 12, Jesus answered and said unto him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord with thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. The second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. And the scribe that had asked the question said unto him, Well, master... Thou hast said the truth, for there is one God, and there is none other but He. And to love Him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love His neighbor as Himself, is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. The whole burnt offerings and sacrifices were the, the completeness of, sacrifice, of, of worship in the Old Testament. And as Jesus summed up what God really desires, this scribe recognized that worship is not just something we do. It's something we do. But it's based in faith on the fact of who God is.
And if we see God as for who he is, and we love him with all our, whole, all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we will worship him. He will be the forefront, and there is nothing that will be in the way. He will receive glory, and we will be fulfilled as people doing what we were created to do, to worship the Lord. Let's have a song. Hymns of the Church, number 86. <clears throat> number 86, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness.